0: Welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast, where we discuss faith, mission, the church, and the intersection of all three. Today on the podcast, we sit down with Lisa Rodriguez-Watson. Lisa has served as an urban church planter, collegiate minister, international missionary, and pastor of discipleship and equipping at Christ City Church in Washington, D.C. She now serves as the national director of Missio Alliance and is on the board of Forge America. You can check out more about her and Missy Alliance at missyalliance.org. Well, welcome to the podcast. This is Alan Bradford with me, Brenna Varner. How are you doing, Brenna?
1: I am on a sugar hangover from (laughs) Halloween last night. Doing so good.
0: (laughs) Yes, recording this on November 1st, post-Halloween. And so how many you said you're on their second cup of tea?
1: Well, I've had some coffee, but I've had to switch to tea because my dinner of Swedish fish last night was a poor choice for my forty-something body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but with us today also is somebody who makes much better choices than me. His <laughs> name is Terry Ishay. <laughs> I,
2: I just happened to make make better choices last night. That is not, yeah. in, in, typically, that is not true,
0: but yes. I, I
2: actually I
0: survived Halloween. It was it was not a bad day. The worst part about post-Halloween is the fact that, especially if you have kids, is that all that stuff's still in the house. So you gotta continue to make good choices, good life choices. Don't do what, don't do what Brennan's done. Just continue and just make sure that stuff stays over there, right? Yeah, my kid didn't even trick-or-treat last night. She had to work.
2: She's so we're <laughs> at that stage of life. Where, oh no. And she was mad too. <laughs> she was like, she got she got scheduled for a shift, and she was like, what? she had this whole party thing. So like, there's not, there's not a piece of candy in this house. It's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah.
0: So I have, I have three girls, two of them are teenagers and they still trick or treat and it makes me happy. But that's, that's the worst part is they bring home all this stuff and it's just like, uh, yeah, yeah, get it away, get it away. But what I'm really excited about is this, is this whole season, we have been uh, interviewing uh, female leaders uh, across the spectrum, all kinds of different people. And what I've noticed is every one of these female leaders has made me feel completely inadequate. (laughs) And let me tell you why. (laughs) The one we're interviewing today, this is just a list of some of the stuff she's done. She's an urban church planner, collegiate minister. She's been a seminary professor, international uh, missionary, and a community development practitioner. Currently, she's the National Director of Missio Alliance and an Associate Pastor of Discipleship and Equipping, and she's on the board of Forge America, and I just feel completely inadequate because that's an amazing resume. Lisa Rodriguez-Watson, thank you so much for being with us.
3: My pleasure. So good to be with you guys today. Sometimes bios, they really make you sound like, you know, a rock star when you're just an everyday kind of gal. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I don't buy that one bit at one. Not at all. Not at all. Lisa, thanks so much for being with us. Let's start this way. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about you?
3: Oh, yeah. Happy to. So I am a mom of three kids, one of whose 17th birthday is today. Um, So, yes. So I'm excited. November 1st, um, 17 years ago. It's wild. Uh, And then I have a 14-year-old and an almost 11-year-old daughter. And so we live in Washington, D.C., have lived here for nine years. We love it. Um, I love raising kids here in this really, really wonderful, beautiful city. I, Yeah, I think, you know, some of what the bio says. I've been married to my husband and best friend, Matthew, for 21 years. We're each other's best champions. And um, Mm. he's a real gift. He's a real gift to me. Um, so that's, that's also fun. Yeah, that's probably good. That's a little bit about who I am. I, I, you know what? I like to share this fun fact. No, I'm not going to do it. It's, it's oh, silly. I it's so now silly. You have to. Oh yeah. my gosh. Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, so I am an Irish twin, which means that my older sister and I were born within the same 12 months. She's 11 months older than me. I was born on the, the on saint patrick's day the day that honors wow. <laughs> the patron saint of ireland so i'm an irish twin born on an irish holiday and i have exactly zero irish heritage perfect. Love it. Love it. <laughs> that's oh,
0: that's, that's, that's perfect yeah that's a little bit more than I, nobody knows that i suspect right nobody <laughs> nobody outside of your family knows very that. so that's good. few yeah. people yeah yeah gonna be a little vulnerable It's awesome
1: so, Lisa, um, as you have been leading in all of these areas, you are the director of Missio Alliance. You're leading in local contexts. You've been leading missionally for a long time. A lot of us are, you know, coming out of COVID times and pandemic and all of the shifts that we've had to make. And we're a little tired, (laughs) maybe bone tired (laughs) would be how we would describe it. Um, Folks are trying to get their bearings again. Um, Folks are processing the shifts that happened in themselves, in the world um, through COVID. And I think uh, what I'm hearing is a lot of folks being like, Okay, what's the hope of the future church? Like, where where are we? And so, you know, we've been asking some some leaders to to hear from them what they're seeing. And I think with all of your fingers in so many different places and and ways that you're able to see um, at different levels, you would be a fantastic person for us to ask. What's giving you hope for the future of the church right now?
3: You know, Brenna, this this may sound like a very counterintuitive response, and that is that. I find a lot of hope in the fact that this is a season of sifting. And, and while it means that some stuff is falling through, the thing that remains is going to be more pure and more beautiful than what once was. And that gives me hope. Even though there's just so much disorientation, even though there's so much hardship around it right now, what I think is happening in kingdom work, is that the sifting is happening, and and the the real thing, the truer, the truer love, the truer community, the truer body of Christ, is emerging, even even in the midst of all the suffering.
0: So, did you ever read? This is an old book. It's from a good Tennessee girl, uh, Phyllis Tickles, The Great Emergence.
3: Um, I never read that book. I'm familiar with it, but I don't think I can say I've
0: read it. In that book, she talks about just the, that exact same thing. And she talks about this idea of, which is wild, because this book was written, it's written quite a while ago. And she talks about how uh, basically, historically, every 500 years, the church goes through a rummage sale. You know, you can just track it every 500. And we're kind of in that space now. And just what you said, just like that, that birth of something new, that the that her her kind of analogy is that the church gets stuck. It's like, there's like a, what she called a hard carapace over it. And then it kind of bursts forth and it just spreads radically. And I guess that gives me hope that you're actually <laughs> hopeful towards that. And that you're seeing that when you have so many, so many fingers and so many pies, if you will, like yeah. you can see a much bigger picture than just a local church. You're seeing a bigger picture. So that gives me hope to hear you say that. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. With all of that sifting down, that that removing of things that aren't necessary, getting to some good core, all of those things that do bring hope, even though they're painful, there's some things that we need to be mindful of to move well through that, to um, move well into the future of what needs to exist after this time. What are you seeing that we need to focus on to make this shift or move through this, this sift?
3: Yeah, one of the things that, I feel real strongly about, um, and this is, I'm pretty sure this came as, you know, as a result of processing once I became the national director at Missio Alliance. Um, I really do think that the church needs a robust commitment to to three things. Uh, first is formation. Um, and then second is justice. And then finally is mission. And, and they're not separate. And I think that that's the problem that we have in the church is like, oh, it's this one thing, and then it's this other thing, and then it's this other thing. Actually, it's the integration of all of them um, that the church needs. And the way that we talk about it at Missio Alliance is to reshape the church's witness in the world. I think if, if and when we, we care about all of those equally and we focus on them as the body of Christ, then we live into what folks are curious about with regards to faith in Jesus. Robust, you know, spiritual formation, real deep looking into our own interior examination, who we are, character building, those sorts of things. Understanding justice that, that the foundations of the throne of God, as it says in the Old Testament, are justice and righteousness. So we have to understand what that is and what that means for our everyday lives. And then lastly, we're on mission. You know, God is, God is a God who is out there in the world doing, making all things new. And we get to be part of that every single day when we choose. So those are the three things that I think the church has ahead of us that we get to um, say yes to. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Lisa, I'd, I'd love, would you mind jumping in a little, a little more around the idea of formation and justice? Because I'm curious, you know, one, what's the work of formation? Like, what are you encouraging and pushing other leaders? And, and I know you work with a lot of pastors from around the country around some of these things. What are you, what are you really kind of getting at when it comes to the formation piece and how does it intersect with justice? Mm,
3: that's a good question. So the, the things, it's different for different pastors. And so I, I, I'm, I wanna be mindful of that because some pastors are incredibly driven and what we need to drive home is you get to work from a place of rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, really and so what we, need to, what we really need to extend the invitation into is a robust theology around Sabbath so that we're working out of rest and not resting because we are working so hard. And then there are others who deeply need, (laughs) I I point the finger at myself, I'm telling you, the the depth of understanding of the love of God. Nobody gets away from this. So I'm not Mm -hmm. saying some of us need it and some of us don't, but how we operate out of the deep understanding and experience of the love of God. So that love flows through us and not just a sort of whatever I can manufacture on a daily basis. So I think when I think of formation, it's, it certainly is um, the spiritual practices, but really committing to even things like having a spiritual director. I think that's a really healthy choice for Christian leaders or something of that sort where where it's not just up to us to like, make sure I'm reading my Bible and praying every day. Those things are critical for sure. But But being mindful of the deeper invitations and what it is that we need in order to stay spiritually vibrant.
0: So just a couple days ago, I got to hang out with... Okay, I'm, I think his name is Todd Bos, Boslinger. Wolfsinger. Boslinger, Boslinger, Boslinger. Yes, the guy who wrote Canoeing the Mountains. He was right. at a, a conference, a little conference I was at, and he dropped this line on us. He said, basically, he said, if you try to lead anything without either a coach, a spiritual director, or a therapist, he goes, that is malpractice. Yeah. <laughs> and I, man, I had to sit on that comment for a while. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love what you're saying. So Sabbath, and then also other people bleeding into you, mm-hmm. the accountability, the direction, the, the, all of that stuff. I think that's, that's brilliant.
3: Yeah. And then I would add to that exactly what Todd is saying is the interior examination dealing with some of the, the emotional side, the emotional health side of mm-hmm. things. Yeah. They're, they're connected and they're, they're all very internal. Um, and then I think, Terry, to answer the second part of your question is what's the relationship between formation and justice? I think when we don't do that interior work, the things that are laying dormant or active within us emotionally get projected out into the world. And that can be toxic. <laughs> um, so if we're, I mean, there are some justice spaces that let's be honest, they're just, they're really difficult. They're vitriolic and they're, they're pretty toxic. And, and some of that I think could be due to the fact that the, the healing hasn't been done and so we need to we need to be sure that we're working out the things that that still need to be healed in us even as we're engaging in in the justice issues that are are at our in our very front door
2: yeah and and i think that's the thing that unfortunately we you know there are you only have to hop on Twitter to hear people talk about how justice is a problem, you know, because there's so many people who are like, "Oh, we need to stop worrying about justice and just focus on the gospel or things like that." And and, and you know, and I think a lot of that is people are responding because they do see there there are some toxic things in 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 the justice world but here's the the downside there's a lot of toxic things kind of going around in the church world as well and no so no question yeah so it's one of those things where i think uh, i love i love the the three areas uh and again you know we're not saying they're linear but they they very do kind of dance together and that that spiritual formation piece that that being shaped into the likeness of christ mm-hmm. it's so key in, in our in our pursuit of justice and even for our family you know, we pursue justice as a family uh, mm-hmm. towards reconciliation with uh, at-risk students and, and kids. And we've been foster parents uh, on and off mm-hmm. for for many years. And it's one of those things where there have been times where it's been beautiful. And there have been times where it's just like it's the most toxic thing in my life because mm-hmm. I because and, and it all goes back to am I being formed into the likeness of Christ? And yeah. that is that is a a huge piece And so I'm curious, as as you're working with leaders and organizations around the, the area of formation and justice, this mission piece, like, and, I, and and that's where one of the things I think Forge America, that's that's our big thing, and yeah. this is where Missio Alliance and and Forge America have been friends for a very very long time. Right. Uh, you you serve on our board, so thank you for doing that and bringing your voice to that. But I'm curious, what where what what excites you about the about the conversation around mission? Because it does feel like in the last handful of years, we've had a bit of a shift in in the conversation where it, it felt like forever uh, it was just simply trying to convince people. Oh, yeah, mission is something you should think about, something you should engage in. And now there are people who are like, yeah, we should do it. Uh, and the conversation's really kind of ramping up. Uh, and I'm just kind of curious, what are your thoughts on the landscape of mission, uh, especially when it comes for the
3: church? Yeah, well, I think that one of the opportunities that we have with regards to mission is and its, and its relationship to justice, I think, is it goes back to the way that God is making all things new, right? And so the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus isn't actually good news if every other house on your block is boarded up. <laughs> and so that is more a picture of desolation than it is consolation of the work of of abandonment than it is acceptance there's no flourishing in that story and the the more we can be people who are good news people you know then I think we're getting to the heart of mission is when you know when my neighbors see that I care about the homeless kids down the street just as much as they do that my well-being is wrapped up in their well-being as Jeremiah teaches us we root and we plant together and we're good news people together I feel like that's that's the invitation that is the mission that we get to be a part of is is being good news people and the truth of it is is we've always I mean I would say in the white evangelical tradition we've we've always thought or have for a long time thought and we're formed in the thinking of the best good news is that you get to go to heaven when you die. Mm, yeah. And we really didn't make the connection that if Jesus isn't good news for the incarcerated, if Jesus isn't good news for the immigrant, if Jesus isn't good news for the poor, then our gospel is too small. We have to be exhibiting a a good news that is good news for
1: everybody. Mm -hmm. I wanted to take a step back, and I think it goes back to both mission too. You know, we've extrapolated formation and then mission apart from formation as this separate activity, and then justice has been like... Hanging, hanging participle, right, from the church. Uh, and, and so bringing those back together. And, you know, when, when Terry asked you the question of justice and, and formation being together, and you talked about the healing that needs to take place for formation, I think I realized that my first reaction was more from a, honestly, like a white background of saying, oh, I need to come in and the formation for me is that I'm going to be challenged and it's going to be painful. So it's actually mm-hmm. not like I need to step into healing, like I need to step into some discomfort and that's my formation. And so I think there's a nuance there when we're saying for formation to lean into justice and we all have areas of privilege and not privilege, right? But where mm-hmm. where are we at in that place? Um, I think that's really mindful as we step into justice or we step into mission, what what lens are we looking at it with? Am I coming at this justice from a place of privilege? That means I'm gonna need to know that part of my formation is going to be to give up some of that privilege. If I'm coming into a justice and it's coming from a lack of privilege, um, I'm going to have to lean into that with what you were talking about, the healing. And maybe maybe I'm bifurcating that too much, but it just really occurred to me like, man, we're gonna have to, as we... As we merge justice and formation, as we merge mission and formation, we're going to be really mindful of what posture and what privilege we come to that table with so that we have right expectations of what we need to bring to the table.
3: Yeah, no, for sure. And one of the you know one of the ways that I didn't answer that question, which I think you're getting at, Brenna, is the opportunity, I think for the for the missional church, In the United States, I think is to begin to learn from those on the margins, rather than being the the carriers. Let's be the receivers. Rather than being the tellers, let's be the listeners. You know, I think that that is a new posture that we're trying to learn how to fit into, particularly for those in predominantly white contexts or at the top of, you know, of the at the top side of power, not on the underside of power. So. That's my, it's often my encouragement to folks in in the white, primarily white evangelical space is God is still on the move mm-hmm. and, he, and it's happening in the margins. The, the churches in the margins, the immigrant churches, those who are in um, communities that are disenfranchised, they see God, they get God because they don't have a choice. They, they live dependent on God. And, um, and so that's the kind of faith that we need and we won't get there if we won't listen and we won't quiet and, and take a posture of a learner. Mm -hmm.
0: That's really good. So I want to even go take a step farther back. So you said the future you loved, so the formation, justice, and mission, those are the three things. And if I remember what you said, right, or if if I remember right, what you said, it was that these are the things that are appealing to not just the church, but to everybody, mm-hmm. right? I think everybody's looking for that. And it mm-hmm. made me think of, there was this study that came out quite a long time ago. I'll tell you how long ago it was. It was, they were targeting uh, millennials. And they said, basically said, hey, millennials are leaving the church. Where are they going? Mm-hmm. And they came up with six themes of where millennials are going. And here are the six themes. It was, um, they're going to go find community, personal transformation, social transformation, purpose finding, creativity, and accountability. And yeah. then they kind of give examples like, you know, CrossFit is personal transformation and accountability. So you got a lot of millennials going into CrossFit or whatever. And to me, uh, that, that's the amazing part is all the stuff that you just mentioned. I think these things fall up under it, right? Yeah. These things can fall up. Uh, these six themes fall up under the three things you said in a broad category. And that's what people are looking for, right? Inside the church and outside the church.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's right. So we have an opportunity to Mm -hmm. to you know to shift because again, this is a time of disruption. We can, if we are willing, shift along with what the spirit is doing and shift into those things. They're deeply Christian. I mean, we we all have this like, you know. What's the old language? The old language is very cheesy, so we may have to edit this out. Uh, <laughs> well, we have a God-shaped hole in our heart.
0: <laughs> yes. yeah.
3: I would say yeah. we all have the longing for eternal mm-hmm. things within us. and yeah. um and these are the things. Um, and and the expression of them now is is formation and justice and mission.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's good. Mm.
1: Well, Lisa, you've had a long history of marrying. Justice and mission and formation. This is um, something that you've been living amongst the the intersection of all three of these for a long time, and you have a, a long history of mobilizing Christians to love our undocumented neighbors um, and to respond to that immigration crisis. And you know, from that lens, as as sent people, as missional people who are looking to listen more and to uh, step into these areas to receive a gift from maybe our undocumented neighbors that are bringing to our communities what do you think we need to know um, as we as we listen in here so i think it's
3: good to start at the beginning where genesis 1 helps us understand the truth of who we are and that is that all of us are made in the image of god if however we orient our understanding To our favorite media channel's interpretation of immigrants, um, we run the risk of seeing them as something other and not as image bearers. So so that's very, very foundational. The next thing that I would say is um, it's very possible that our undocumented brothers and sisters are actually our brothers and sisters in Christ, Mm -hmm. that they, they come here as people of deep faith. Um, the journeys that they have been on, whether by train or by boat, by raft, by overstaying a visa, whatever the journey has been, for some of them it is a deeply spiritual one, and they have had to risk everything. Um, so the faith background, the the yeah the faith backgrounds that they have come from um, are part of what carried them here, and and I would say are part of what uh, we might need in order to live a more vibrant spirituality and faith. And then lastly, it it troubles me that for those of us who have long loved missions, we tend to think of the foreigner as someone to whom we carry the gospel over there. And we're very, Mm -hmm. very good with being a missionary and going over there. When they begin to come over here, then we don't want to be the missionaries anymore. Then we want to put up all the barricades at the border and do whatever like that. And then we don't see it as an opportunity. We see it as a threat. And I think that it's good for us to interrogate that missiology because it's the same people. And the resources needed to go over there are so many. <laughs> and, and it doesn't cost us anything to be a good neighbor. So why not see this as a missional opportunity for those who come and who are not people of faith? Why can't we have the same missiology to love the people who are in our very backyards, just like we would love the people that we fly far to faraway places to see?
1: I've never even, I mean, that's obvious, but I've never even thought about the people coming across uh, the border, undocumented, being the exact same people we send missionaries to. Uh, I haven't, I haven't connected that into my brain until just this moment. That's really powerful. So Lisa, you were a part of a collection of writings that came out recently in this new book called Voices of Lament, Reflections on Brokenness and Hope in a World Longing for Justice. And you did write about your own family's immigration story in, in your chapter in this book. Uh, Will you tell us a little bit about the new book and then about your, your story that that's there. Sure. Yeah.
3: So the the, the book is a um, collection of essays and poetry and liturgies. It's such a rich volume, <laughs> and it's a it's written all by women of color. And we are writing reflections on Psalm thirty seven, which is a psalm that talks about how God deals with the wicked. Um, so each contributor who's writing a reflection on say an, you know a particular set of verses within the psalm exegetes a little bit the the text but then writes from their own perspective what the how that passage connects to their own story I this is, this is the very first piece that I ever wrote for publishing and it felt like the right thing to do to honor my family and their journey in coming. It was the very best way that I could honor their sacrifices was to tell their story and to record their story, our story in, you know, in print. And so I chose to write about my grandparents when they brought my dad and his two brothers from Cuba in the 1960s to the United States. And the, the chapter is titled, Just One Suitcase. And that came from a conversation that I had with my grandmother years ago um, when she had told me that her, her half-sister had defected from Cuba decades later. And, and I said, imagine, Abuela, imagine that you have to pretend that you're leaving on a work trip just like every other work trip that you've ever left on. You know, one suitcase and you pretend like you're going to be back. And she said, Lisa that's every single one of us. We had one suitcase. And so for the reader, I invite them to imagine the, both the lament and the joy of saying goodbye to everybody in one night, packing for yourself, your husband, and your three sons, whatever it is that you are going to be able to fit in one suitcase to come to a new land and have a a new life, but leave everything behind. There is both deep lament in that, and there is also deep, deep hope. And so that's the story that I tell.
1: That's so beautiful. And uh, you were telling us earlier about the process that the, the group of you that wrote this book went with Natasha through to uh, process the information together to bring this together. Can you tell us a little bit about what that uh, team of women did to bring this book sure. into the world?
3: Yeah. So N- Natasha was brilliant. I mean, she's a phenomenal leader. If you if you don't know her work yet, you really would benefit from getting to know her. She began to recruit contributors, poets, liturgists, artists, writers, all kinds of women from from. 20-somethings to 60-somethings across a pretty broad theological spectrum in the Christian tradition, global and North American. I mean, it is, it is, it is excellent. Um, and so she began to invite us to monthly Zoom meetings where we would talk about the book and we would talk about our writing and we would talk about, you know, what's coming up and so on and so forth. But this was in the height. This is just about two years now. Um, So in the height of 2020, when the whole world was still suffering deeply Mm -hmm. and we, we're not just contributors on a book now, we're a, we're a collection of women who have walked the last two years together, who have shared our stories. It, you will see on the very inside, one of the very first pages is a page in memoriam. And it's a, it's a, a page that commemorates the folks that we together as a community lost during um, the process of, of writing the book. Uh, so she built a sisterhood. It's not—it's not just a book, but it's a sisterhood.
1: And for it to be written from entirely women of color, um, what what gift would you say that women of color bring to our understanding of lament? Because. Let's be honest, we're, we're not real good at it <laughs> in mm-hmm. the church, not a, not a strong muscle, not one that we like to exercise. Uh, so what gift would you say that these women are bringing to us?
3: Yeah. Would it be too strong to say they bring us the, we, we women of color bring, we bring the gift of a more beautiful God, mm-hmm. um, of a bigger God. Because the truth of it is, is when we skim right over the surface of of our sorrow and our grief and we don't actually dive into lament, we keep God so small. We keep our emotions so small. There is is very little depth there. And so there is very little place for us to engage and be present with a God who deeply understands, personally understands lament and grief and sorrow. So some of the beauty that I think that we give is, is a, a bigger and a more beautiful God. And if we can't lament fully, then how can we hope fully? Then how can we rejoice fully? How can we see the, the, the vastness of God if we don't engage in this one particular aspect? that the Bible is very clear on. A whole book of the Bible is called Lamentations. And so this isn't something that we've made up. It's something that we're invited into from the scriptures. The psalmists, I mean, wow, they really dig deep into Lamentation as well. And so um, that is, that's a gift that we give is we we say, here, here's, here's our heart. See it, And come and be with us in it. Don't just read about it and put the book down and go on with your day, but walk with us in this lament and learn how to lament for yourselves. But don't just lament for yourselves, lament for us too because these experiences are for, particularly for some women, are every day, every single day. And having the solidarity of other believers is a gift. It is. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I think you're scratching at something that I think needs to be scratched at more. You know, in the evangelical church, we we just we almost ignore uh, lament, mainly because we live in a Western society that wants you to think positive. You know, we, we it's it's not even the church. I mean, I think the the West in general just does lament really really bad, and so you know, I know I know in the last handful of years. You know, racial tensions, COVID, war, and all these kind of big pivotal moments have there. There's been kind of an outcry and an, and an encouragement to lament. But I mean, what what advice? What suggestion? What, what's a what's a good starting point for someone who's just maybe they've bought into to our, the societal pressure to just think positive and and don't sweat the, the, those kinds of things and like how, how would one even begin the process to really have just the beginnings of, of practices of lament in their own life?
3: That's a great question. I wonder if the reason why we are so averse to lament is because it's hard. Um, it's uncomfortable. Wouldn't it be so nice if we could just all be positive all the time and not have to be uncomfortable? I think, Terry, I guess maybe even a question is, is is what's underneath of that an idolatry of comfort. And so if something pushes up against our idolatry of comfort, oh no no, we have to have a, a you know a philosophy of positivity. Well, you know, I think that's that's part of the challenge and how does someone begin? Well, I don't well whatever it takes to learn how to become uncomfortable. Like If you're if you're not uncomfortable, then then get out a little bit, you know, like, I don't know, read, read the newspaper. Um, I, I think there are very practical, just everyday things that if we allow ourselves to interact with the world, we get a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think?
0: So I was wondering when Terry asked that I, I was actually wondering um, I've never been one who's gone to a lot of liturgical churches, mm-hmm. but I'm really intrigued because I think they actually do lament very well. Mm. Um, it's part of the it's part of the gathering. They're going mm. to lament. They're going to say here's this confession, there's this lament, and then mm. there's the grace, right? There's the, mm. you know, we're all sinners. There's recognition of that, and so I mean that's that's maybe one practical way start going to a liturgical church. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> you know, but the typical answer would be, oh, oh, just just study up on it. Like, you know, the thing for me was uh, uh, Sung Chan Ra's uh, prophetic lament. That was yeah. a huge one for me, actually diving right. into the Book of Lamentations, understanding what that meant. But then the practical aspects of it, I think there's something ingrained in us culturally that doesn't want to look at that. Right. You don't look at the, you don't look at the, you don't acknowledge the bad. No, everything's good. Everything's great. We win, we succeed. And I wonder if it's just, I don't know if it's a Western culture, if it's just an American culture, maybe it's just a Southern thing, but it seems pretty ingrained that Mm. you don't, you don't acknowledge that stuff, especially as a Christian, because, because, you know, things are, Jesus saved me. Everything's good. Everything's great.
1: Mm. My shepherd lens um, went real Brené Brown on the answer. And I think that there is... um, you know, already also in our Western culture, there's a reduction of feelings. Like if you ask people to name feelings, they can name three. Like our, (laughs) our competence in uh, uh, feelings like that skimming over the top is like, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, or I'm happy. Or, you know, we um, minimize the full scope of human experience in the way that we um, have nuance and feelings. And so I wonder too, if there's a a first step in understanding lamentation is to expand our understanding of what we experience when we're experiencing emotions. Um, You know, am I frustrated? Am I overwhelmed? Like to expand that and to really understand our own emotional experience would also help us to connect with other people's um, emotional experience and ability to understand that lamentation.
3: Yeah, I think our another challenge that we face is that it's it's not often that we choose into discomfort, mm-hmm. um, and we would rather read about something than experience it. Mm-hmm. So, what does it look like to choose into discomfort relationally? Would would you be willing to spend time in a more disenfranchised community? Would you be willing to, you know, give up some of your personal time? to become a mentor to a kid. Those are the kinds of things that then when you then when you get in relationship with people it's not just an idea. It's not just something that you read about in a book and you can try and understand from an intellectual perspective, but then you're touching the heart of it and you get impacted by somebody else's lament and challenges and discomfort. Mm-hmm. That's where the transformation happens, I think.
0: And I would even say that that society now, just like you said, society wants formation, they want uh justice, they want mission. I would say that the world is learning or is yearning for a space to lament, yeah. like giving, give, giving real tools, real avenues to actually lament. And that's something we're supposed to be good at, right? It's a church. We're supposed to be able to give people the voice uh to actually to grieve, to mourn, to go, this is not the way it should be, right. you know, and then say, and there's hope, but given the space to say, you know, I want to shake my fist at the sky and say, why is it like this?
2: Yeah. And, and I think one of the, the things, like when I think about lament, I think it's more indifferent than complaining or being critical. And and I think sometimes I've seen people's like, well, I'm going to lament. And then it's just complaining and it's just, <laughs> you know, being critical of things. And, and, and I think there's something inherent about the idea of lament that Yes, there are there are times to be critical and there are times to complain and to let those things out. But I, I think there's an underlying sense of hope mm-hmm. in in lamenting that it's like, yes, this this isn't how it ought to be, but there's hope knowing that God's not done with whatever it is that's in front of us. And and, and that's that's the thing that I, I long and even in conversations even with my wife in our relationship as we kind of journey through life together, that I, I think Western society has plenty of criticism and plenty of complaining. But I think it's it, it lacks that hope that I think lament brings where it's like, yes, we can voice the, 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 the hurt, we can voice the brokenness and we can voice what what may seem hopeless. But we know is not hopeless because Jesus is at the center of this, that that lament is almost it's it's complaining with a delivery to God saying, "Okay, God, do something with this. Uh, And I think sometimes we just complain to the sky and that's just complaining. But when we when we complain to God and say, God, it shouldn't be this way. Why, why, why? We're holding and trusting you to move and work through this. There it just seems different. I don't I don't know. That's just in my head how I see it. But I, I see I see the value in that more than just simply complaining and because that's what I would hate for someone to hear this and walk away. It's like, well, I guess I just need to complain more. And it's <laughs> like, no, it's it's not complaining, it's it's just giving it to God. It's 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 voicing the brokenness, it's voicing the pain and trusting that God's gonna work in this.
3: Yeah, that's good. Terry, you're exactly right. In, in one of the contributor's pieces, she actually has a bit of a call and response. And um, in some of our book launch events, we, we did this call and response and, and she addresses that. Um, and this is what it says. We wail knowing God listens, even if others don't. His faithful love endures forever. Thus in Him we wail So nobody can ever say, we didn't trust God to turn it around.
1: Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for jumping in with us, for diving into some of these really big questions and bringing such wisdom and humility and grace to all of these areas. I have learned so much. I have so much to reflect on. uh, And we can't wait to look forward to talking to you again in the future.
3: Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. You're such gracious hosts. Um, What a wonderful conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Lisa. Sure thing.
0: Thank you for listening to the Forge America Missional Podcast. Forge America cultivates practitioners who join in the mission of God. If you'd like to know more about us, feel free to check us out at forgeamerica.com.